He's looking for his seventh riding title at Tampa Bay Downs, but this month jockey Daniel Centeno is marking a milestone of a different type. We'll chat with him on the show. Plus, what happens when social media influences actual decisions involving racehorses? We'll examine an interesting case where it happened. All that and more is on this edition of In the Gate. They're in the gates. They're about to move in. They roll side. And they're off. As they move to the top of the straight. It's a hit by the finish. This is In the Gate, ESPN's Thoroughbred Racing Podcast. My name is Barry Abrams. You can follow me on Twitter at B. Abrams Voice or on Facebook at Barry Abrams Voice. You can also get us on our YouTube channel by searching In the Gate Podcast. You can find us on Stitcher, SoundCloud, TuneIn, the Pink Apple Podcatcher app, and of course in the Listen tab at the ESPN app. For the full In the Gate experience, subscribe now in the Listen tab at the ESPN app. And please take a minute to rate and review the show. Those reviews really help others find us. Well, except the folks at America's Best Racing, but we'll leave them alone for now. He's won nearly 2,900 races here in the United States and nearly 900 more in his native Venezuela. Many of those wins have come at Tampa Bay Downs, where jockey Daniel Centeno was in search of his seventh riding title. He even earned his first ride in a Triple Crown race, the Preakness, where he finished 11th on Always Mining. All jockeys have obstacles to overcome. That's obviously the nature of the business. But one year ago, Daniel Centeno had an even tougher burden to bear. In January of 2019, Centeno's longtime partner, Ashley George, died after a nearly lifelong battle with cystic fibrosis. She left behind their daughter, Jasmine, who's now in seventh grade. It's tough enough being a single dad, and oh, by the way, Centeno also has a 20-year-old son in college, but it's pretty tough to work from home when you do what he does. So let's find out how he makes it all work as we welcome for the first time here to win the gate jockey Daniel Centeno. Already a handful of wins for you at the Tampa Bay Meet, a place where you've had quite a bit of success over the years, more so than in Maryland, where you've ridden over the summer. What's been the key to your success in Tampa? I don't know. I've been here for like uh, 15, 16 years now from from my first time, and I, I really like it. I love it, especially the weather. I've never been really ran with the cold weather. I never try to stay up, up north on the winter time. And I think year by year, you know, riding better horses, better training. I got too much support here in the beginning from Jamie Ness, Kathy uh, O'Connell, and now riding for De La Cruz. So that made me, you know, open a lot of, a lot of more auctions on, around the track. And, you know, all my agents that I have been working for, they're doing a uh, great year too. Now you split your year between Laurel Park in Maryland and Tampa. Now I know we're not going to see you at Aqueduct in the winter based on what you just said, but what made you choose those tracks as opposed to say New York or California? Well, because uh, people that are riding for here in Tampa, they want to go to Laurel, Delaware, and New Jersey, you know, bars. So that's like my schedule. So I go up north on the, on the, in the springtime. So I'm really busy driving a lot and everywhere, but uh, we're doing good. And there's a, a lot of options around, you know. Jockeys are said to have 
particular riding styles. You know, for example, Paco Lopez takes horses away from the gate aggressively. Everybody knows that. Likes to go to the early lead. Pat Day was known as wait all day, coming from behind. Calvin Borrell is Calvin Borrell. You know where he's taking his horses. What do you consider to be your style? Well, I can, I would say that I like to be more on the lead. But, uh, you know, it depends what kind of horse I'm going to ride. But uh, I would like to be close to my style now, to really close to the lead or close to the pace or be in the lead. You know? But it's a, it depends the kind of horse you ride. Sometimes you got to change a little bit your style to fit out on the horses, you know, and then work out good too. But I'm, I feel more comfortable really close to the lead or be something that would be perfect for me. Of your nearly 2,900 career wins, you've won five grade three races in your career and a single grade two aboard Ring Weekend in the 2014 Tampa Bay Derby. You earned a ride in the Preakness as well in 2019. What do those kinds of races mean to you? They they mean a lot for me, you know, because I, I can't hear gentlemen. I started in Cleveland and Tistle Down, so I've been doing building my career in him in this country like little by little step by step working hard uh, riding different different track that was a great day for me that, that me a lot for me you know like i worked so hard and then it's like a payoff for my work and then never give up and keep trying you know especially last year when i wrote the pregnancy it was like a dream come true you know the got the opportunity like I picked the horse and it was run, running really good and Kelly Robley and the owner they gave me the opportunity to ride in the pregnant it was so a dream come true for me was it hard not to look around and just take in the atmosphere and instead focus on what you were doing how hard was that to do yeah well I come from Venezuela it's a completely different compared here and then here you really have to be focused and work hard every day so you can keep your business and, you know, doing your job and try to not make mistakes, you know, and then try to hard every day. How hard was it making the adjustment from Venezuela coming here as a young man, not sure of the language and not knowing what your prospects would be? What was that adjustment like? Well, this is a big chance, you know, especially with the with the language that you have to really talk to everybody and understand what they want to tell you, trainers, owner. When I was in Venezuela, I started doing English class in private. I went to high school in a private school. So when I came back here, I came here one time in 1996. So I didn't do really good because the language, I could speak more and then went back to Venezuela. So I... I didn't want to come back here again and, and do the same. So that's what I took the English classes, private and and learning. So when I came back in 2003 to Ohio, I was speaking just a little bit. I could understand a little bit. And then I soon you got it. You practice every day. You're talking every day. So make it easier for you. Jockey Daniel Centeno joins us here on In The Gate. It's been a year or so now, I believe, since your partner, Ashley George, passed away from cystic fibrosis. What was it like losing her? It was a lot. You know, we worked together for almost 10 years, and we went through a lot. We were in 
every time she got sick or get, was getting worse, and especially for my daughter, Jasmine. But I'm blessed that my daughter is so strong. She's been through a lot, and she's doing amazing, and I'm missing it every day. I got to be strong for my daughter and then try the, the best for her. Now, I believe when you have cystic fibrosis, you have it almost your entire life. So you must have known when you met her that she had this condition. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. So she told me from the beginning, but she was doing she was doing okay. But in the meantime, they were running her lungs, was getting worse and worse. And there was a point that the, the only chance she had with the transplant and the medical camp, you know, she got both a uh, long transplant. She was doing great. And one day she came back home for Halloween and she got stroke. And she was a coma for a mom. She wake up and never recover her memory. She was talking and everything, but no memory. And she recognized Jasmine. And she was in the hospital for two years, and and doctor said that her body was rejecting everything again, and then that uh, her body just her heart just stopped working. Did you say she was in a hospital for two years? Was that kind of in and out, or was she in a hospital all the time for two years? She was uh, two years in the hospital because she couldn't leave the hospital. She couldn't be by herself. Grandmother would take care of her. I was flying back and forth sometime with Jasmine to see her, but she can not recognize anybody, no memories, just long time memories of when she was young or kid, and then too much medication, so it was really good time for my daughter either at that time, so... Oh my goodness, now it's one thing to be yeah. a dad... But it's another thing when those kids are both teenagers, because as many of our listeners yeah. know, teen is a four-letter word. I know. I have yeah. a teenager. And yours are on the opposite end of the teenage spectrum. So just when you finish the teenage thing, it all starts over again. How have you been able to manage all of that and your job? Well, uh, <laughs> that's another thing that no, nobody can know. I think I'm blessed that my parents teach me to do everything so and then prepare for anything. I wasn't never expecting something like that, but uh, I was thinking to the school, pick them up, sometimes babysitters on, on the racing days, come home, make dinner, and be mom and dad at the same time. And it's part of the life. Do you really do that? You finish racing at Tampa or in Laurel, and you go home and then make dinner for your daughter? Yeah, for both of us. Wow. Yep. So sometimes I was a little tired from long day, so I just go to a restaurant and have dinner and come back home to her home where it's not. We just go home and cook for both of us. And Wait till she asks you for the car keys. Those days aren't too far ahead of you, you know. Uh uh, she's 11, so... It goes quickly. And, look, I hate to break this to you, but teenage daughters are harder than teenage sons. Yeah. Yeah, I know. But, uh, you know, I'm really blessed the way she is. She's really smart. She's really strong. Doing so great in school and never had problems with everything she went through. So, 
really proud of her and really blessed. I believe your dad was a jockey back in Venezuela. What was it like watching him and learning from him? Nothing. My dad was a boxer, and I was supposed to be a boxer, but never liked it. I was training with him every single day. I actually grew up before I went to the jockey school and boxing, so he was a professional boxer. Now he's just a trainer, he's traveling around. Um, I was training every day with him, with his boxers, and do everything, but I never feel like they really like that. So when he started meeting guys, uh, jockeys, in the restaurant in Venezuela, and then we went there and started walking around with them, and, then, and I told one day, I really like that, I, I want to be a jockey. <laughs> and then he, he kind of freaked out because he was expecting I was going to be a boxer, and here I am. How often do your kids or your father come to watch you ride? They come for one, twice a year because of being so busy right now with boxing and traveling a lot. So when we got a little break, they both come and stay with us. How often do your kids watch you ride? Oh, my kids, they don't really like the track, never like it. So they went opening day. When I received the joke as a mom, or when we have a like big day or big day with my sister, but they don't, they don't really find it all the right track. They say they get boring. They say, I ask them, you don't want to keep up with working, but now you're fine. You're okay. Well, that's not a good sign for the future of the sport when one of its most successful jockeys has kids who don't even want to see the track. That's not a good sign. <laughs> Yeah, it's kind of weird, you know, everybody wants to be there looking job, but they've never been, like, really fun for the, the races. Well, for those of us who do so, care, we certainly wish you the best of luck as you pursue a seventh riding title at Tampa Bay, and thank you so much for a few minutes. No, thank you, you for having me, and um, I appreciate it. It's one thing for people to voice their opinions on social media, but what happens when decisions are actually made from those comments? It's happened in horse racing. We'll get into that when we come back. Welcome back to In the Gate. If people commented to you on social media that they wanted you to jump off a bridge, would you do it? The answer may sound simple, but we've all seen in recent years that your actions may be affected, either directly or indirectly, by what you read on social media. The Arab Spring uprising in 2010 was fueled largely through social media. There have been cases where young people have committed suicide because of cyberbullying. In horse racing, the social media pressure issue centers around Green Grotto. Green Grotto is still there. He's opened up a two-length lead on Unified as they turn for home. Green Grotto, Unified is closing on the outside. Green Grotto is still there. Unified on the outside. The two of them come down to the line. Green Grotto, get it! Green Grotto and Krista Carlo have shocked them in the Carter at 54-1. to Who won the grade one Carter handicap in 2017 when he was seven years old. It was an amazing story, actually. Green Grotto was essentially a gift to his owner and trainer, Gaston Grant, a working-class Jamaican immigrant who was working as a truck driver for a mail carrier. That win in the Carter turned out to be Green Grotto's final victory. He started 12 more times, retired in 2018, 
started stallion duty in New York, but was unable to impregnate any mares. Eventually, Green Grotto ended up in Ocala on the farm of Liz and Norman Wilson last year. They turned him out in a couple of different paddocks. According to the Wilson's trainer, Tamara Levy, Green Grotto didn't seem happy in either space. One day, Liz Wilson put some tack on Green Grotto, and he started putting on weight and becoming a little hard to handle. So, Tamara Levy began thinking about bringing the nine-year-old Green Grotto back to the races. But when that story reached social media, the uproar caused the Wilsons and Levy to abandon the idea. Hmm. Social media clearly played a role here, and the question is, what to make of that role? For some perspective here, let's welcome into In the Gate for the first time Christine Oser, who writes for the Blood Horse. Christine also has an academic background in social media from Syracuse. So, Christine, what did you first think when you learned of the social media component of this Green Grotto story? Um, you know, it's it's difficult because I'm not around the horse to say how he was and how he wasn't. But social media, the more it's evolved. I mean, obviously, we have what we call horse racing Twitter now. That's how involved it's gotten with fans and connections. It does bring more awareness to following horses, which when horses are dropping down ranks, you see people tweet out, this horse is dropping in for a claim. It used to run at this level, and people keep an eye on that stuff. So I think in a way it creates accountability, but then you also have people who are trying to talk about a horse's career who may be have not been around that horse. So it, it's hard to say unless you have been around that horse, but it definitely creates a lot of awareness and more accountability. Well, even stepping back one level from that, I mean, it's one thing to post cute cat videos on social media. I personally enjoy those. But it's another thing when our actions are influenced by opinions from the masses. So with your academic background and working background in social media, what do you make of our allowing social media to influence what we do? It it can be good. Like I said, it does create more awareness and account and accountability. But you know, you also should have the professionals who know the horse best. You should have vets looking everything over. I think it's kind of a mix. People who are working directly with horses, hopefully they are doing right by them since they know them best. But in a way, it probably is almost help having people being able to be more aware on social media because that image follows people longer when people are constantly tweeting about horses and keeping more track of them. Now, it's one thing when the pressure on horsemen, as was the case with this Green Grotto story, comes from officials like the governor of California, who's been critical of racing in the state after the whole Santa Anita thing last year. And we're not going down the Santa Anita rabbit hole. But in this case, the pressure's coming from ordinary individuals on social media in the case of this Green Grotto story. So what do you make of the fact that it doesn't seem to matter who is applying that pressure? And, and that's the tough part of it, because you don't want people who don't know anything trying to stop these careers or trying to change something about the horse when it's happy with the situation it's in, or if he really wasn't happy turned out, you know, you don't just want to leave him turned out because he's being pressured. It's a weird balance that we've had to learn how to deal with, with public perception and also applying 
industry insider knowledge with people who do work with the horse. Right. And, and with regard to that idea, you would think that the less you know about a subject, the easier you are to be influenced. But the connections of Green Grotto are longtime horse people, yet they were still influenced and by largely anonymous individuals. So what does that say about all of us and where we put our trust? That also comes back to people having to do their own due diligence on, you know, social media is great because we can create more awareness of issues. Like I said, you know, people who follow horse racing closely and they've seen horses they love drop down into low claiming ranks. They're able to keep an eye on them and help other people keep aware. But at the same time, social media also gives everyone a tool to just say whatever they want and people don't necessarily always do their research to know exactly what they are talking about. Christine Oser of the Blood Horse joins us here on In the Gate. And to get to what you were just saying, what are the reasons that accepted social norms of civility seem not to matter much online? I, you know, for me, it matters because working in this field and working in journalism, you know, you have to have things right. But that is a battle that we are dealing with and that people can say whatever they want online. And it's battling the things that aren't true and trying to spread true news and not spread the false news that people spout out or use wrong resources that are incorrect. It's, uh, and they can do so anonymously, too. Yes, 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 yes. That's always another thing. You know, some people just get behind these fake names and, for lack of a better word, troll people online. And that's just what they do, and they don't even put a name or face to it. Now, we've seen plenty of good uses of social media, like the ones you mentioned. You know, fans can vote for things that actually happen. The National Hockey League is allowing fans to determine the last players selected for the All-Star Game this month. And some of those players probably earn bonuses if they're voted in. So the fans are directly influencing something that, for lack of a better term, matters. Where should the line be drawn, though, in public involvement? Well, on the positive side, I know there's a race like that in Australia where fans can vote in horses. And I think that's kind of cool because it grabs more people's attention, probably, if they have a say in what big horses are running in this race. They have the all-star mile over there. But at the end of the day, it's okay to be concerned about what happens to horses. It's okay to want to make sure they go to a good home. That's great, actually, to make sure they're cared for. But at the end of the day, just because you're behind a keyboard doesn't mean, you know, you're there seeing what's going on with the horse. But it is good to have people be held accountable who are involved with the horse. So that's another factor of it. It's an odd, odd mix. Well, clearly the genie's not going back into the bottle. I mean, social media is here to stay. So, Christine, help us out. How do we cope? Hmm. I mean, like you said, it, it's here to stay. And at the end of the day, you have to do what you believe and what you know is best. There's going to be voices and criticism coming from every side. And, you know, social media, it's like you said, it's not going away. It's going to be there. And Part of that is just you have to learn to filter out the negative, I guess, and learn how to just take things with a grain of salt. <laughs> yeah, I think we all have to develop a little bit thicker skin. And 
Hopefully this perspective will help you all develop thicker skin. Well, Christine, thank you so much. It's great to have you on the show finally. It won't be the last time either. Thanks so much. Thank you. Our thanks once again to Christine Oser and Daniel Centeno. Bob Baffert's the 32nd trainer to reach 3,000 wins, but the stat book doesn't differentiate between wins on major and minor circuits. Carl Broberg has more W's. Is he better than Baffert? It's not even a debate. But in earnings, Baffert's not too far from the 300 million mark. He'll be the third to reach that lofty height. Todd Pletcher and Steve Asmussen are the only current members, and Baffert may soon put them out of sight. That kind of success comes with a price. Baffert's always a target. He was accused last year of doping Justify, a charge largely disproved by the reporting of NBC's Tim Layden. But the matter still refuses to say goodbye, since fellow trainer Mick Ruiz has filed a legal motion to change the Santa Anita Derby result. And while the governing body should have made their review process transparent, this legal motion amounts to an unfair insult. You can get us on our YouTube channel by searching In The Gate Podcast. You can get us on SoundCloud, Stitcher, TuneIn.com, the Little Pink Podcatcher app, and in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. Remember, you can follow me on Twitter at B. Abrams Voice or on Facebook at Barry Abrams Voice. That's In The Gate for this week. I'm Barry Abrams. We'll see you next time.